Welcome to Happened Here. People, places, and the stories they tell. I'm Joanna Lumley, host of this episode, Mixed Fortunes. 18th and early 19th century London was rowdy, visceral, exciting, shot through with punishment, prostitution and pugilism. In this episode, we hear about Londoners pilloried at Charing Cross, about the remarkable story of a woman who went from hard life to high life in just a few short years, and a smashing tale about a former slave who became the most celebrated bare-knuckle boxer in the land. Without further ado, let's begin. Charing Cross, Central London. Ritual Humiliation. Written by Joanna Clark and performed by Lulu Freeman. Two rotting cabbages and a rotten egg. That'll do. She could pick up some horse manure along the way. Keep up, Hattie! Eight-year-old Hattie Reed hurries after her father. It's a sunny afternoon in June 1790, and father and daughter join the stream of market sellers, making their way down the Strand from the Covent Garden Piazza to Charing Cross. It's almost noon, the usual break time for labourers, so the crowd of spectators is no surprise. Hattie feels one man brush past her, dangling a dead cat from his arm. What a find! The pillory comes into view. Atop a platform stands a wooden frame, complete with six holes, through which two condemned people are forced to put their head and hands. Today, two women stand awaiting their punishment, as a number of constables attempt to hold back the baying crowd. Keepers of bawdy houses, both of them, a man at the front sneers with disgust, readying his supply of projectiles. The first woman is pushed into position and shouts loudly. If all my sex are to be punished in this manner for venial offences, I doubt whether all the timber in Norway would be sufficient to make pillories for them. Mary Whaley probably wasn't wrong. After all, 18th century Covent Garden was a hot spot for brothels. But the crowd ignores her and bombard Mary until she is covered in all manner of garbage, excrement and the unfortunate feline. Hattie, being small, squeezes to the front with the other children and aims her rotten egg perfectly. Gotcha! she cries triumphantly. In the 18th century, working-class children were not shielded from the brutality of life, and such an afternoon's entertainment was commonplace. Indeed, it was an expected spectacle, which, if withheld, could cause tempers to rise. When, in 1765... One man's sentence was postponed to the next day. The mob, provoked at this disappointment, vented their rage upon all that passed their way, whether afoot or in coaches, and threw at them dirt, rotten eggs, dead dogs, ordure, which they had provided to pelt the unhappy wretch, according to custom. On more than one occasion, a trip to the pillory could prove scarring for life, and even fatal. One woman, Anne Marrow, in 1777, was pelted to such a degree that she lost the sight in both her eyes. 
and in 1732, John Waller was pelted to death by the crowd. Hattie and her fellow spectators don't throw stones today. Lucky for Mary Whaley. An hour later and both exhausted brothel keepers, head to toe in filth, reach the end of their allotted punishment. The crowd disperses, but Hattie doesn't want to go back to the market stall and work. Dad, wheedles Hattie, wiping her snotty nose on her sleeve. Can I head up to St Giles and see the men that's to be hanged? Please. It's customary for the cart of condemned prisoners to enjoy a final sup of ale, nicknamed the St Giles's Bowl, brought out to them in their cart at the churchyard gate just north of Covent Garden, en route to their hanging at Tyburn. Bloodthirsty brat. No, get to work. But maybe if her luck is in tomorrow, her dad will give her the time off to follow the cart all the way to Tyburn. Pretty brutal. There were few safety nets in this era, and disaster and kinder turns of fortune jostled shoulder to shoulder. A coffee house in Bedfordbury, Covent Garden, a theatre in Lincoln's Inn Field, and Holy Trinity Church, Wensley, Yorkshire. An unlikely purchase. Written by Sarah Fleming and performed by Olivia Bell. Lavinia Fenton was vivacious, a promising beauty. She was witty, had a beautiful voice, and turned the heads of costermongers and peers of the realm alike. In the early 18th century, her mother kept a coffee house in Bedfordbury at the western end of Covent Garden. Lavinia attracted the attention of many customers, including rakes and actors whose intentions were frequently less than honourable. Lavinia's teen years were mostly spent waitressing at the coffee house and, sadly, most likely also working for her own mother as a prostitute. You've got to feel for the girl. At that period and coming from that class, she didn't have a lot of options. The choices were basically harlotry, domestic service or the theatre. Or, indeed, some combination of all three, as Lavinia chose. She began acting at 18 and two years later, in 1728, was discovered and won the part of Polly Peachum in John Gay's satirical ballad in three acts, The Beggar's Opera. The opera was an immediate and massive success, and so was she. The aptly named producer John Rich made so much money from the show, he was able to build a new theatre on a new site in Covent Garden. That would after a few fires, become the Royal Opera House. Lavinia's wages doubled as the house filled to capacity every night. Her life was transformed, and in a glorious example of art imitating life, the opera, which romanticised the world of crime and prostitution, made a star out of a real prostitute who, ironically, portrayed the opera's only virtuous woman. She was the talk of the town. Copies of pictures of her as Polly Peachum sold out. Poems and plays and biographies were written about her. On opening night, Lavinia had caught the eye of the third Duke of Bolton. He spent the rest of the run courting her. 
When the play closed, the married Duke set her up as his mistress. William Hogarth, the famous satirical engraver, turned a scene from the opera into one of his few oil paintings. It was one of the first British paintings of a scene from a play. It depicts Lavinia as Polly Peachum, pleading for the life of a highwayman she has secretly married. Hogarth painted six versions of the painting, and in the later ones, after the affair became a scandal, Hogarth added in the Duke of Bolton, sitting watching Lavinia from his box. Lavinia remained the Duke's mistress for 23 years, bearing him three sons, and then, in 1751, when his first Duchess died, the Duke married Lavinia. As the Duchess of Bolton, she became a respected member of the aristocracy. They divided their time between London and his country mansions. He owned several estates in Hampshire and the family seat of Bolton Castle in Yorkshire, all of which Lavinia inherited after his death. During his life, in a somewhat eccentric and rather loving gesture, the Duke had bought from the Lincoln's Inn Theatre the very opera box he had been sitting in when he first saw Lavinia and had it installed in his local Yorkshire parish church to serve as a family pew, a role that it still fulfils to this day. It's like London buses. You wait ages for a rags-to-riches story and then all of a sudden, two come along at once. Molseyhurst in Surrey and the Horse and Dolphin Pub in Leicester Square. The celebrated Professor of the Fist. Written by James Rampton. Performed by Cassius Connie. He simply refused to be beaten. The face of bare-knuckle boxer Bill Richmond was a grotesque patchwork of blood and bruises as he hauled himself off the ground once more for a final assault on Tom Shelton. Stunned by his opponent's resilience during this brutal fight, 27-year-old Shelton was finally separated from his senses as Richmond, just two days shy of his 52nd birthday, proceeded to launch a dazzling fusillade of punches. With one last mighty roundhouse right to the jaw, Richmond knocked his exhausted adversary out cold and leapt over the ropes in triumph. Shelton's extreme fatigue is not that surprising when one learns that this fight lasted an eye-watering 115 minutes over 23. Yes, that's right, 23 rounds. Mike Tyson never boxed for more than 12. The writer Pierce Egan, who had been ringside at this epic bout at Moseley Hurst in Surrey in 1814, was enthralled, observing, Impetuous men must not fight Richmond, as in his hand they become victims of their own temerity. Richmond retired after that bout, with an impressive record of 17 victories in 19 fights. But boxing was one of the most popular sports in the world at that time, and so he remained a widely loved celebrity. Newspapers devoted several pages to him on a daily basis. He went on to become the successful landlord of the Horse and Dolphin pub in Leicester Square. As the journal Bell's Life in London reported, Bill carried on a roaring trade. Scarcely anything else sluiced the pearls of the magnificence but champagne in the bar. Richmond's achievement is all the more extraordinary when you consider that he was born into slavery in the bizarrely named Cockold's Town in British America in 1763. 
At the age of 13, he was released into the care of British General Hugh Percy, a well-known philanthropist who was taken by Richmond's quick wit and even quicker fists. Percy brought the boy to England, where Richmond received a good education before swiftly establishing a name for himself as the finest fighter in the land. He even earned the ring nickname of the Black Terror. Richmond's accomplishments are also remarkable when you take into account the appalling prejudice he faced. The Encyclopaedia Britannica, Britain's leading reference work in that era, called all black races an awful example of the corruption of man left to himself. But through his skills and determination never to be defeated, Richmond overcame persistent discrimination to be accepted into high society. The elevation of the elegant, well-educated Richmond was sealed in 1814, when he was one of the celebrated professors of the fist who sparred in front of Frederick William III of Prussia. Richmond also acted as one of 18 ushers at the coronation of King George IV in Westminster Hall on the 19th of July, 1821. Seconds out, final round. After retiring, Richmond kept his hand in the fight game by training young boxers. He was by then so celebrated that he even coached such renowned writers as William Hazlitt and, if you can believe it, Lord Byron. Like all of us, the poet was doubtless attracted by the boxer's formidable reputation. Outside the ring, Bill Richmond was a magnificent, dignified man. Inside it, he was mad, bad, and dangerous to know. A pretty punchy set of stories about the mixed fortunes of 18th and early 19th century Londoners. Happened here, people, places, and the stories they tell. If you enjoyed this episode, please share, tell your friends and leave us a kind review and a rating on your podcast platform of choice. But for now, from everybody involved in Happened Here, the writers, the hosts, the performers, thank you for listening. Do come again. We've got lots more stories to tell. <laughs>